Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year has gone by incredibly quickly, but it's always nice to pause and take stock. What's something you're proud of in 2024 so far? What's something you still want to accomplish this year? I know I'm guilty of falling into a routine and not always thinking about the bigger picture, but as the great Ferris Bueller once said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you can miss it. So it's crucial to take a moment to celebrate your wins and make adjustments for the rest of the year. Therapy can help you contextualize your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. As you surely know by now, it's not only for people who have experienced major trauma. Therapy is helpful in all kinds of ways, including learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. If you've been considering trying therapy, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and was specifically designed to be flexible and customizable to your schedule. To get started, just fill out a brief questionnaire that matches you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash film daily. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Tuesday, January 29th, 2019. On today's episode, we'll talk about the latest film and TV news. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Soretta, and joining me are Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. And writer Y Tran Bui. Hey, everyone. So our entire staff is still uh, in Sundance. That then, I mean, not our entire staff. I, obviously, us three are here in the office, but Brad, Ben, and Chris are in Park City, and uh, so we have a light team here. But we're, we're we're still covering all the news that's breaking. But before we get into that, I wanted to plug a few things on the site. First of all, Brad, Ben, and Chris are kicking ass and filing tons of reviews from Sundance. So if you want to check out those, I'll link them in the show notes. Also, our uh, interviewer, Jack Giroux, uh, has sat down with director Joe Cornish to talk about The Kid Who Would Be King. Uh, So you can read that on the site as well. Uh, What else do we have going on on the site today? 
So I visited the set of Dumbo back in 2017, and today I have three interviews from some of the cast members uh, on the site, uh, one from Colin Farrell, one from Danny DeVito, uh, another from Joseph Gatt, Joseph Gatt, but Colin Farrell plays a new character um, in this film, and this is his first time working with Tim Burton. In the interview, he talks about how he's just been really excited to work with this director for a long time, and it's kind of his dream gig, whereas Danny DeVito is part of a... Tim's whole uh, traveling circus, as uh, Colin calls it. So uh, this is um, some fun stuff about their uh, time working on Dumbo and uh, whether and just kind of extolling their love for Tim Burton in general. Yeah, and uh, Danny DeVito calls this the the completion of his circus trilogy with Tim Burton, which I think is kind of funny. Yeah, this is his uh, his second time putting on the circus ring mask, ringleader sort of uh, costume, but he was kind of playing a, a circus ringleader in um, Batman Returns, Big Fish, and now Dumbo. Uh, Josh Spiegel, our frequent contributor, uh, noted that today is the 60th anniversary of Sleeping Beauty. So he wrote an article called Sleeping Beauty at 60, How Disney's Beautiful Box Office Failure Changed the Company Forever. It's a very good look back at what makes Sleeping Beauty so special. And I guess the, the, cliff, I guess the, the tease here is that uh, the film was a huge failure at the box office. It did not recoup its money. It led to layoffs in the animation department at Disney. And it led to Disney doing uh, cheaper processes for future movies and future animated movies. With, and the article kind of questions what would have happened if this was a hit and Disney had continued pushing the, the animation tech that Cinderella had pioneered. I'm sorry, not Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty had pioneered. So it's a really, really good what if story as well as an appreci- appreciation for a genuine bona fide classic that was not a classic until years after it was released. Yeah, Josh Spiegel is a, like, he is an expert of all things Disney animation. So it's worth reading. Let's get into the news, some news that just broke before we got on the podcast involving the the Dune. Uh, is this a remake, I guess? I, I guess? I'd say re-adaptation, honestly. Re-adaptation. Well, there's some yeah. casting news, and I know, Jacob, you are super excited about this. Uh, yes, uh, Oscar Isaac has joined Denis Villeneuve's upcoming Dune movie playing Duke Leto Atreides who's the father of Timothy Chalamet's character and the husband of Rebecca Ferguson's character. And Variety broke this news, and and I'm really excited about this, guys. I love Dune the book. I think Denis Villeneuve is such a perfect fit for his material. He calls it his adult Star Wars, and that's actually the kind of movie I think Villeneuve built to make. And Isaac's playing like the Duke Leto, or Leto, I don't know how you say it. I've always read it as Leto in, in the book who is sort of the seasoned commander, the wise, fair ruler of House Atreides, who is given control of the planet Arrakis, which is this uh, desert planet where spice is mined. And spice sort of keeps the galactic economy running. It's a, it powers spaceships, it uses a drug, it's all kinds of things. And naturally, things go Game of Thrones on House Atreides. They're too good for their own good. And all kinds of bad things happen to them. And even though Paul is the main character, Timothy Chalamet's character, uh, Duke Leto could have sort of, the shadow is over the entire Dune series. He's sort of the the Ned Stark of the series, a guy whose whose life influences his son in ways that are important, you know, for everything that happens. And even though Isaac is younger than I always imagined uh, Duke Leto to be, I feel like he's such interesting, strong casting for the for the ideal ruler for the for the science fiction uh, leader we all aspire to be and want to have. And and I, I'm just. I'm really excited about this. I mean, there have been good, there have been good, good Duke Leto's in the past. 
Jurgen Prochnow played him in David Lynch's really fascinating but really bad 1984 adaptation. And William Hurt played him in the 2000 miniseries and Sci-Fi Channel, which was, you know, very, very faithful to the book, but, you know, very, very cheap. So I think this is this could be the definitive screen version of this character. Uh, Peter and HT, I know you guys haven't read Dune, but Oscar Isaac is exciting, right? I am extremely excited for this movie. I mean, it has all the names that I uh, absolutely love. Uh, Denis Villeneuve, Timothy Chalamet, Rebecca Ferguson, and now Oscar Isaac. And I have to say, this is possibly the most attractive cast um, (laughs) after Black Panther, probably. It's just, it's. They're so ridiculously talented and attractive that I can't wait to um, to see this movie. See, I, I love this filmmaker and I do love this cast, but I was not a fan of the David Lynch uh, adaptation of Dune. And um, no one is Peter. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. I haven't read the book. I haven't seen that mini series that you talked about. Uh, it always seemed kind of more fantasy than sci-fi to me and i'm not a huge fantasy i mean this hearing you describe this jacob sounds very game of thrones ish and uh as as you know i'm not a big fan of game of thrones either (laughs) so so jacob tell me like sell me on this why why should i be excited for dune should be excited for Dune for all the reasons it probably will excite everybody except you, which is that it very much is, even though it came first, Game of Thrones in space. It has all kinds of intrigue. It is palace treachery, rebellion, warfare, giant battles, people you know spying on each other, um, forbidden romances, crazy science fiction ideas, spaceships, giant battles, uh, characters going on journeys to find them tr- their true selves, massive aliens, giant monsters. Peter, it, it, it is Star Wars slash Lord of the Rings level like storytelling. It is, it's going to be, it, it, it needs to be massive, and I think it's going to be massive. Hmm. Well, I, I am certainly intrigued just by the filmmaker alone and, uh, you know, stealing Oscar Isaac from, from Star Wars, I guess, also helps my interest a little bit. Uh, but let's move on. Let's talk about the Lego Movie Two, because or I guess it's called the Lego Movie: The Second Part. And uh, I'm kind of curious about this film because the trailers haven't excited me as much as I, you know, I, I really like that first film from Lord and Miller, and this one doesn't seem to be selling the comedy as as highly as that that film did. And I know they had their first screenings. Uh, last week, I, I I missed it, and the the first buzz has hit the the web. Ht, what, what are is everything awesome again with Lego Movie Two? Everything isn't quite as awesome, but it's still pretty good, according to the critics who got to see the Lego Movie Two. So our old pal Jermaine Lucier from IO9 uh, seemed to be pretty pleased with the movie. He said it's hilarious, clever, and an emotional sequel, but it does take a little time to get there. Um, and he says that it's almost on par with a brilliant original, uh, which is definitely a worthy achievement, uh, but not quite up to um, the up to par with that film. And a lot of people seem to agree. Um, William Bibiani at IGN says that Lego Movie set the bar too high and the sequel couldn't measure up. Um, Lego Movie 2 isn't quite as funny or brilliantly executed as the original, but it's an ambitious and likable sequel. And uh, But a few others are uh, less sweet on the movie. Matt Singer at Screen Crush says that... Um, 
it's fine, but even its title suggests it's more cog in the machine than disruptor. Uh, and uh, it's uh, it seems pretty a little bit divided. People are saying that it's good, not as good as the original, and others are a little less impressed. I know at these screenings they also had like people in costume as the three leads from the movie, which it always seems like when they do that kind of thing, they're trying to get the the critics more hyped on a movie that isn't great. But uh, I don't know. HT, are you still excited for this film? Uh, I will see it. I don't know if I could say I'm excited for it. Um, I really like the Lego movie. I even liked the spinoffs. Um, I liked Lego Batman. Lego Ninjago was fine. Um, and oh, wow. Just, You're like the one I, person that has seen that film. I I saw Lego Ninjago. I did watch it as part of that um, animation feature wrap up that I think you assigned me. You're like, you should write yeah. about this. And I was yeah. like, okay, I'm going to watch all of these movies. Um, but uh, I, for some reason, couldn't like bring up my, bring myself to be that excited for a Lego movie too. I think, like you said, the trailers didn't quite uh, make it for me, even though it seemed to capture the spirit of the original. Um, but I'll probably end up seeing it at some point. I don't know. To me, even the song feels like it's just trying to recapture the magic, but it doesn't quite get it. Jacob, uh, am I wrong? I don't think you're wrong. I I feel like Lego Movie was such a lightning in the bottle thing. This this movie that should never have worked in any capacity whatsoever. And the thought of revisiting it, uh, it just I'm uh, I, I'm filled with a little bit of dread because I feel like this can go wrong so easily that I am I'm approaching it cautiously. You know, there's just a different director there. The trailers aren't as funny. I am. I'm cautious. I hope to like it, but yeah, I, I think it's. I think being cautious about this is a, is actually the responsible way to approach it. You know, the the worst thing about the Lego Movie, uh, and it being a critical and financial success, is that we're getting all these movies in development that are about things that shouldn't be movies. Like, I guess they're developing like a Play-Doh movie. You know, like it basically justifies Hollywood adapting anything because, oh, if they can make a good movie out of Legos, then, you know, oh, sure, we can make a good movie out of Play-Doh. And this is a good transition point because we've learned that Warner Brothers is making a movie out of Funko Pops. HT, what is going on here? Yeah, so uh, Warner Brothers Animation is currently developing a live-action animated hybrid based on the popular toy and action figure line Funko Pops. Um, So this Funko movie is currently in development, and it will reportedly center around characters like Wonder Woman, the Care Bears, Hellboy, Deadpool, Hello Kitty, Harley Quinn, Darth Vader, and My Little Pony. So just a... who's who of of random superheroes and uh, other pop culture icons. So this is a kind of a strange choice because Funko has always been kind of the, uh, well, it was originally created to tap into movie nostalgia. They were created to like tie into movies and uh, other such um, TV properties and stuff. And there's even, you know, a director's line and uh, they're more about tie-ins than actual um, toys for the sake of being played with, but I guess that's that's the case with a lot of action figures. But um, it's it just feels like the snake eating the tail kind of um, thing in which these movie merchandise toys are being turned yeah. into a movie of their own. Well, I, I've kind of known about this for some time. I wasn't able to talk about this, and it, I, I will correct you a little bit. Like it, it will 
they're playing around with that. I think they're still developing this, so they don't know what characters are going to be in it. But I think mm-hmm. those characters are going to be more of supporting roles, kind of like you know, okay. Lego Batman was in the Lego Movie. I think, at least from what I heard, the story is going to follow this otter named Ollie, and uh, there's a bunch of characters. That, like, there's going to be like four original characters that's going to follow, and I guess. I don't understand exactly how the other characters are involved. Like, is this a world where all these pop culture creations just exist in one place? Or or are we jumping from different worlds? And also, uh, you know, these Funko Pops don't have mouths. So, like, how are they going to talk? Oh, it's going to be very uncanny if they give them mouths. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I feel like... um, I don't know. I, I know a lot of people have problems with the Cars universe and how the Cars universe works. I, I, I can't in my mind figure out how the Funko Pop universe will, will come together. Jacob, do you have any ideas? No comment. This all sounds terrible. It's a, <laughs> it sounds like the Emoji movie all over again. No, no, thank you. I mean, I do know that they do have some more talented people on this than the Emoji movie. So it, And I, I do like the idea of mashups. Like, I feel like, you know, we're now in this this era of cinematic universes and stuff. And I, I like the idea that we can now play around with these iconic characters interacting with each other. And maybe, maybe I'm being the optimist here and it's, this is going to be terrible, but maybe this is the, the way we get like a movie where we can, we can have DC characters interacting with Marvel characters, interacting with hello kitty. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. That seems like it could be kind of fun. It could be fun in like a Roger rabbit kind of way kind of yeah. similar to the first in um wreck it ralph yeah um i don't know jacob i'm not selling you am i no i think roger rabbit is one of those things it's a good touchstone because that movie should be terrible um but robert zemeckis is such a wizard that he makes yeah. it work and phil Lord and chris miller were, were such wizards that they made lego movie work and you, those pretty much Zemeckis at the height of his powers, Lord Miller at the height of their powers, like some of the most thrilling creative minds in the past 50 years of entertainment made those work. So you're going to have to really sell me on actual talent to make me have faith in the Funko Pop movie. Yeah. I don't, I don't know who's involved, but I've heard some really good people that we'd be excited about are involved. So, uh, you know, take that for whatever it's worth. Um, let's move on to a bit of, uh, well, Jason Bateman, who has been direct, you know, moving into directing, uh, he directed episodes of Ozark. He, I think he did a movie before, right? Yeah, I did a movie called uh, The Family Fang and Bad Words, I believe that one's yeah, called. Yeah, um, he's directing another movie. This one will star John Cena, but the the concept for this movie is what has me truly intrigued. Tell us about it. Yeah, the concept here is essentially a night the museum goes to the movies. And this came from The Hollywood Reporter that Jason Bateman is directing this uh, apparently sizably budgeted uh, Netflix movie starring John Cena. And the premise is that a, let me go ahead and pull this up. The story centers on a family that gets stuck in an old abandoned movie studio. The set has come to life and the family members find themselves stuck in various movies. So, you know, it sounds like potential hijinks are involved. Wait, and- wait, how does a movie set come to life, Jacob? I don't know. This is the question. Like, I don't know if it's going to be like you know, uh, characters characters pop up like they're uh, in the studio, or if like they walk into the set and the set becomes real. 
the it's not really made clear. It's also not made clear if they're going to be licensing famous movies. So like they walk into the set of E.T. and suddenly they're in E.T. Or if it's going to be a bunch of, you know, fictional movies like generic Western or generic horror movie. Uh, I, I don't know. And the story is not clear. What is clear, though, is that Jason Bateman knows that Game Night was good because Mark Perez, who wrote Game Night, is behind the screenplay here. So it's re- reuniting those two. And makes me think that even though this sounds like a night museum with movies, this could be this could skew a bit more R-rated because uh, Game Night is you know very much an R-rated comedy in all the right best ways, and Jason Bateman's always you know starring a lot of edgier, darker comedies. And John Cena uh, is is an interesting fit here because you know ten years ago he was a WWE wrestler and he still is, but after Blockers and other movies recently, he's proved himself to be really really good at playing like bumbling dad types, despite the fact that he's this huge muscular man. So John Cena, Jason Bateman, and Mark Perez in this premise on Netflix is just a combination of really odd things that I'm very, very intrigued to see how it comes together. I mean, I'm not, nothing Bateman has directed has like lit, lit me on fire. I wasn't a big fan of bad words. I haven't seen Ozark. So I don't know if I'm excited for him to direct yet, but I am very intrigued to see what the writer of game night cooks up with Jason Bateman again with John Cena starring. Jacob, you need to see Ozark. Ozark's so good. I will say this. When we this headline tweeted out, it didn't mention Game Night at all. We got nothing but, like, people being like, pass. You know, this sounds bad. And then I tweeted, you know, in response of, like, oh, cool, the uh, you know, the writers of Game Night. And then all of a sudden we're like, oh, now I'm interested. So it, it – it's, I tried so hard to think game in the headline, Peter. It's such a long headline. I know. I'm not, it's not your fault. I even tried to. We couldn't. We couldn't do it. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm. I'm really curious about this because I like movies that are about movies and movies that are like have characters going into movies. I, I know it's a bad movie, but I love. Uh, have you ever seen Stay Tuned? I've never heard of that movie, Peter. Tell me about it. Yeah, it was a movie in the early 1990s, and it starred uh, John Ritter as a guy who, uh, alongside his wife, gets sucked into a television set and have to survive a gauntlet of twisted versions of TV shows they find uh, find themselves in, and it inc- included shows that exist and shows that don't exist. And it, it's I don't know. I found it a lot of fun as a kid, but I'm sure. I'm sure it probably doesn't hold up. I'm sure it was probably more fun as a kid than it is now. And that was more, uh, I don't know. I, I'm, HT, are you, are you at all interested in this movie? I am after, you know, the game night plug, actually. And I do like what John Cena is doing um, after they stopped casting him as meat-headed cops. And he just started <laughs> playing into his comedic talents. He's so good in blockers. And he's great, too, in train wreck. He was a big surprise there. Um, so I am interested in that. I, I don't know anything about Jason Bateman's directing style. Um, I, but I, I'm willing to give it a shot. It sounds fun. And interestingly enough, uh, Boris Kitt of the Hollywood reporter who broke the story, uh, mentioned on Twitter that they were, or in, in the newsletter or something, uh, that basically that Jason Bateman has a part in this movie, but he isn't going to reveal what the part is because he doesn't want to ruin the surprise. That makes me think that Jason uh, um, Jason Bateman will be playing like someone interesting, like uh, maybe even a character that Jason Bateman has played in previously. Like could... Well, I, I guess it's movies, it's not TV shows, right? So it's not like they could go into like Arrested Development or something like that. 
Yeah, my guess would be he's playing somebody famous in film history, either a famous film character or a famous filmmaker, something that something that who's someone someone whose presence or name would be considered a a spoiler or or a surprise ruin if it was announced. I mean, what if he's getting sucked into Netflix TVs and movies, and this is like a way to combine? This is the way to create the the uh, you know connected Netflix cinematic universe. This is actually Sounds- a really elaborate ad for Ozark. Yeah, <laughs> sounds like it's a terrible idea. It's so terrible it could be true, Peter. <laughs> okay, uh, let's move on. Let's talk about uh, what's going on with this Times Up challenge. Uh, it kind of uh, started over the weekend, and a lot of people have kind of committed to this. So, HG, tell us what is the Times Up challenge? So Tessa Thompson proposed a challenge called the 4% Challenge, uh, which would encourage Hollywood's producers, movers, and shakers to work with at least one female director in the next 18 months. And Tessa Thompson proposed this at the Sundance Film Festival uh, before saying that she is going to commit to working with a female director. And quickly afterwards, um, plenty of other uh, producers, actors, actresses uh, stepped up to that challenge as well, including Jordan Peele, Brie Larson, Constance Wu, J.J. Abrams, Reese Witherspoon, uh, Lena Waithe, Kumail Nanjiani, uh, and and more. There's just at least 50 people now who have um, uh, a promise that they're going to work with at least one female director in the next 18 months um, and high-profile high people at that. So this is a, a good challenge to for the Times Up movement that it's, it's sponsored by both the Times Up movement and the Annenberg Inclusion Initiative, and um, it ref- the four percent in this challenge refers to the statistic from the Annenberg Initiative that finds that only four percent of the top one hundred studio films um, were directed by women. That is interesting. I I, I wonder if this is going to have any effect because hiring a female director to develop a project doesn't mean that that project is going to get made. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. like this, this isn't like they're committing to making a movie in the next 18 months with female directors. That's that's not what's happening. They're they're hiring a female director to to, you know, develop a project. And as you know, if you're following if you're following like even someone like Guillermo del Toro, there's tons of projects that people are involved in that never get made. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Jacob, do you think this is going to move the needle, needle a little bit? I mean, at this point, even the tiniest nudge of the needle is yeah. something. I mean, the fact that all these people who were on Twitter or on social media and said, hey, I'm going to do this, we now have their names written down in an article, and in 18 months we can check back. And if they've done it, we can congratulate them. If not, we can say, hey, what happened? And I guess our job as you know, people in, the, in industry media and the jobs of their fans and the job of other filmmakers to – watch these promises and watch people keep them or break them. And I think that's, that will move the needle is shaming people and the doing the right thing. Yeah. That, that 4% statistic is just like appalling. It, it really yeah, is yeah. like, you know, obviously w- w- what is the earth? It's made up by more than 50% female, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, I- I'm wondering what the statistics are of like even female directors out there. Like what is the percentage of, filmmakers or you know people identifying themselves as you know, directors that are actually female um but even that must be i'm assuming 30 to 40 percent if not yeah. there, must, there has to be a lot more than we ever hear about the problem yeah. is that, uh, that there's so many of them are probably you know doing other jobs you know working on crews and other, other other things you know not filmmaking but working other trades while trying to get their films made 
and we just don't hear about them because nobody will hire them because this industry is broken on some fundamental level. Yeah, there was that great BuzzFeed article a few years back about how plenty of female directors, after having you know won a big major hit, uh, ended up not being able to find work immediately afterwards and had to go back to TV, for example, and just kind of trying to work their way back up through the ranks in television and um, not being able to find their next big feature project. So this is, I think, about just opening up the opportunities for people who you know, already have proven themselves and already have proven that they can direct a film and also just like opening up opportunities for people who may not, may not have had it before. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that you bring up TV because this is less. This has become less of a problem on TV. Like there's mm-hmm. showrunners like um, Ryan Murphy, who I believe ha- half of all the stuff that he's making right now is directed by females. I just watched a couple weeks ago You, and uh, th- th- half of those episodes directed by female directors. So uh, this has already been a challenge that I think television has kind of taken up. Um, and I mean, I guess maybe that's thought of as a lesser medium to, to movies. Uh, you know, Hollywood has to get this together and... I mean, definitely move that 4% up. 4% is ridiculous. It's, it's just ridiculous. Um, but, w- yeah, we'll have to check back in a year and see if this has any real effect. Because, I mean, I don't know. That, that, that That's just uh, sad. Um, okay, let's move on to our, our final story. And this is something that hit yesterday. It is uh, that Universal Studios has kind of announced that they are... Not no longer doing the dark universe. They're connected, uh, you know, monster cinematic universe, and they have lined up someone to direct the Invisible Man. Now, Jacob, I know you are a huge fan of Universal monsters, so uh, tell us about this. Uh, yeah, I say, Peter, this is stuff that's very close to my heart, and I'm proud and happy to say that I think Universal is doing the right direction here, and that is they've hired. Uh, Director Lee Wanell, who did the pretty good Insidious Chapter 3 and the very good upgrade to direct The Invisible Man, uh, which will be produced by Blumhouse and Jason Blum, you know, behind Get Out and Paranormal Activity and all those uh, very well-known, very profitable, lower-budget horror movies. And this suggests that Universal is realizing, hey, making a $200 million mummy movie that's an action film starring Tom Cruise may not be the best way to honor these characters going forward. So I think bringing in Jason Blum, bringing in Lee Wanell, people who have excelled at working on low-budget genre movies to make The Invisible Man is a really strong sign. And Variety has the whole story. And the other like the other little undercurrent here is that the Dark Universe is dead. Long live the Dark Universe. Uh, what exists now, instead of the connected universe of Universal Monsters, will be uh, more monster movies, but no longer being force-fed into a universe where they're all going to be connected by Russell Crowe. It's going to be their own unique things, you know, probably at a much lower budget, probably more straightforward horror movies, each one helmed by a distinct filmmaker. Uh, we did make one correction to our original article, which uh, we originally misconstrued that Blumhouse is going to be kind of taking control of the Universal Monsters, which is not the case. Universal reached out and let us know. Uh, but I wouldn't be surprised if this is testing the waters because Universal is such a good relationship with Blumhouse. I wouldn't be surprised if we see Blumhouse maybe getting more and more in on this action, especially if Invisible Man works out. Uh, for those who don't know, Invisible Man is based on the H.G. Wells novel. A man turns himself invisible, a uh, scientist, and he goes crazy. <laughs> the serum makes him invisible and drives him nuts, and he goes on a murderous rampage. And it's the original 30s adaptation uh, directed by James Whale is very funny and very dark and extremely entertaining. One of the more underrated Universal movies. So 
Lee Wan L kind of already did a mad science gone wrong movie with uh, last year's Upgrade, which is a very, very cool movie that more people need to see. So I am very intrigued by what Wanell and Blum can do with these universal characters uh, and where they can take them, especially after Dark Universe flopped so hard. And as a quick side note, Johnny Depp was supposed to be in this. He was even that big, famous, or infamous uh, Dark Universe cast photo of all the, the people the, who... <laughs> yeah, the one that was, like, photoshopped together. No one was in the same room when they took it. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Johnny Depp, I think Jason Blum and Lee Winnell correctly realized nobody wants to see Johnny Depp in much of anything these days, and he's no longer attached. So if this does move forward, there will not be Johnny Depp in the movie, thank God. What do you guys think? Well, first of all, I don't understand the point of hiring Johnny Depp to be the Invisible Man, if you're not going to see him, then like, <laughs> what, what, what's the point? But uh, I loved Upgrade. Uh, it was in my top 15 of last year. I have been a fan of Lee's work for some time. I mean, since I saw Saw at the 2004 Sundance Film Festival, like this guy has been doing low budget genre filmmaking since then, and um, I'm I'm excited that he's finally getting you know his shot to make something, uh, you know, big and probably outside of the you know the. The smaller, low-budget John. I, I know he did. Um, what did he do with um, James Wan? Insidious. Uh, yeah, he, he he wrote. He wrote. I think he wrote the first three Insidious films for sure. I'm not sure he wrote the fourth one. I can look it up for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, like you know, he has done some bigger stuff, but I feel like this is going to be the biggest thing he he's gotten a chance to do. So I clarify that. Uh, yes, uh, Lee Wan L wrote all four Insidious movies, and he wrote the first. Uh, three Saw films. Yeah. I do want to say that I do... I know you disagree, Jacob, but I I do think that, like, the idea of having a connected Universal Monsters universe was a good idea. The execution of that idea was... Uh, poor like uh, even you know I think even from the start of releasing that photo and where they were coming from and like the like I feel like so many people are trying to copy Marvel and none of them are going back and watching Iron Man 1 and seeing like how simple and how like you know they weren't teeing up teeing up the Avengers in that movie sure they had you know Nick Fury show up in an end credit scene it was kind of like, you know, a fun nod to fans. It wasn't, uh, you know, a huge part of the plot. It was, it didn't feel, uh, you know, it didn't feel like a business decision. It felt like a fun uh, p- part of the story. And I feel like a lot of these Hollywood franchises are trying to, you know, steal that cinematic universe and they're they're just approaching it so poorly and now i think Hollywood's going to come away from this being like oh the only person who can do a cinematic universe is marvel and i feel like that's hollywood getting a bad you know the learning the bad lesson from from this again they're definitely putting the cart before the horse um and not realizing that you just have to make a good movie first before you try to uh do a whole universe yeah if mummy was good if mummy was actually a good movie that satisfied by itself like the first iron man did and then they tease something at the very end in the credits that it could be like ignored if you wanted it to if the movie could exist on its own that's one thing but the mummy does not exist on its own the, the middle 45 minutes of the mummy literally pauses to bring in russell crowe to explain hey larger universe time more movies coming and it's really distracting and bad and it's he said peter if it hadn't built with a sense of fun yeah. it'll be one thing but it's, it, it feels very like a crass business decision even in the context of that movie 
Okay, that brings us to the end of today's Slash Film Daily. You can find more of our, all of our work at SlashFilm.com and the stories we mentioned today linked in the show notes. Uh, Slash Film Daily is published every weekday on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at Peter at SlashFilm.com. And please go rate, review the podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends, spread the word, and we'll see you tomorrow. So HT, there's this guy that wrote in that says he can't trust your your reviews of movies anymore because you recommended Serenity, and he actually listened to your your review on the podcast and <laughs> shut it off before the spoilers and went and saw it with his AMC A list, what you which was exactly what you recommended, and he was he was so disappointed. <laughs> Listen, I never said it was a good movie. <laughs> <laughs> I said it was an experience, and I think that you have to be willing to just let that experience take you away for a ride. <laughs>